listening to Green State, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality, the agency responsible for restoring, maintaining, and enhancing the quality of Oregon's air, land, and water. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Green State. I'm Lauren Wordis. And I'm Dylan Darling. And this is a podcast about how DQ is protecting your air, land, and water. And Dylan, it's so nice to have you back as co-host again. Uh, Thanks for popping in, even though you are still technically on paternity leave. Yeah, thank you. No, thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. It's nice to have an excuse to get out of diaper duty for uh, at least a little bit. Um, I I just couldn't stay away and miss joining you and all Green State listeners as we learn more about DEQ. Uh, This is a nice slow ramp. toward getting back to work fully in just a couple of weeks. And in case you were wondering, a baby girl joined the Darling family in late August. I've been off work as we brought her into the fold, and my son started preschool. So it's been exciting times. Wow, yeah, a lot going on. I'm so happy you're here and that you got to join us for the interview as well for this month's podcast topic. Yeah, I was sad to miss the complaints and inspections episode, uh, but you just can't control when a baby shows up. Uh, They kind of work on their own schedule, as I'm continually reminded. But I'm glad that I was there to talk with our guests this month about enforcement. Yeah, and our guests provide some really good through lines to the previous episode. But just to remind folks... DEQ has a complaint system where you can let us know about pollution that may be affecting the air, land, or water that you're concerned about. And sometimes those complaints lead to inspectors going out to investigate. I did do my homework and listened to the last episode. So I can tell you that inspectors also go out to check in on facilities with DEQ permits. They carefully look through all the reports we receive to check for any issues. Right. And so after that, the next step is enforcement, whether it's a warning letter or an actual penalty. The guests we have today are going to dive deeper into that topic and share with you what happens in our enforcement office. How do they decide how much a facility gets fined, how to try to make sure facilities comply in the future, and what happens if they don't? You'll also get to hear from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Enforcement Office and the Northwest Environmental Defense Center to bring a perspective from outside of the government agencies. Let's get into it. Um, welcome to the podcast. Um, starting with you, Kieran, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about DEQ's Office of Compliance and Enforcement, why it is that DEQ enforces the law. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. I'd be happy to. My name is Kieran O'Donnell, and I manage DEQ's Office of Compliance and Enforcement, also referred to often as OCE. So the Office of Compliance and Enforcement is a relatively small office. We're made up of just 10 people, and we're positioned in headquarters under the director's office. So within the agency structure, we are centrally located. And we're primarily responsible for issuing all of the formal enforcement actions, which assess civil penalties or fines and sometimes require specific corrective actions for violations of all of DEQ's programs for the entire state. 
So you asked, why do we enforce the law? Why do we issue fines um, for violations of the law? And to put it simply, we enforce the law because it works to create better public health outcomes and environmental outcomes. But I think to answer the question specifically, I like to talk about why we enforce the law in three buckets. The first bucket is deterrence. We want to deter future violations. We want to prevent future violations from occurring. And so by finding a violator, the violator is less likely to repeat whatever conduct um, was a violation, say, not operating pollution controls appropriately or um, something else that might have caused a risk to um, our clean air and water. And that's called specific deterrence. And it's specific to the company that receives the fine. But there's also an aspect of deterrence called general deterrence. And let's say, for example, I am Acme Corporation and I see a competitor receive a fine for failing to meet its environmental obligations. I am also more likely to take a look at my own conduct and make sure that I don't repeat the competitor's conduct so that I find myself getting a fine, right? So this is the reason why, for example, DEQ publishes all of its fines on a monthly basis. It's to promote this general deterrence. So that's the first reason. The second reason we enforce the law is we want to ensure a level playing field and issuing fines against violators does that. In Oregon, we're, we have a lot of outstanding businesses. Many of them are committed to compliance. They invest in pollution controls. They invest in their employees to gain expertise. And overall, they're spending the money and they're investing the resources necessary to comply and to prevent environmental harm. But there are others that don't make the investment. And we don't want the violators to get a competitive advantage over those that are investing in the resources to comply. So enforcement of the law is essential to leveling that playing field. And then finally, and maybe the most importantly, as a government agency and as public servants, we have an obligation to Oregonians to enforce the law. Enforcement builds credibility and it builds trust. And we have an obligation to ensure that the law is appropriately and equitably enforced. So that's who we are and why we do what we do. And thanks so much for that background, Kieran. Uh, in particular, the level playing field is a term I've heard often at DQ, and it's just really nice to have that context and, and framework around it of how that fits in. And now, Becca, I'm curious about the enforcement process. In our last episode on complaints and inspections, we heard folks reference that enforcement guidance uh, when determining the appropriate response to a violation. So can you talk a bit about what this process looks like on your side? Sure, absolutely. Hi, my name is Becca Puskis. Um, I work in the Office of Compliance and Enforcement as an environmental law specialist, and I've been with the agency for six years. Um, so as you heard in the last episode, the DQ's inspectors are the ones that are out in the field, and they're typically the ones that discover violations. This is often on a site visit where they're responding to a complaint or doing a regular permit inspection. 
sometimes it's through reviewing records that are submitted to the agencies. So some facilities are required to submit the results of an air emissions source test or discharge monitoring reports to make sure that the, it's meeting water quality requirements. So the inspectors will also be reviewing that kind of information. And when they discover a violation, um, they have a decision to make about what the appropriate enforcement response is. And that's determined by DEQ's enforcement policy, which we call our enforcement guidance. That guidance generally divides violations into two groups. The first group are the less serious violations that receive a warning letter that's issued by the inspector. And that warning letter will document the violation. And if it's needed, it'll ask for the violation to be corrected. More serious violations are referred to our office, which as Karen said, is the Office of Compliance and Enforcement. Um, and what we do is continue to investigate the violation if needed in collaboration with the inspector. And then we assess a penalty and issue a formal agency order. And that's what we call formal enforcement. So the general idea behind our enforcement policy is that there's an escalating response to violations depending on the level of harm to human health and the environment. And it's also an important tool to ensure that we have a consistent enforcement response across the state. So if we have a rock crushing facility in Bend that violates a particular matter limit, they're gonna get the same kind of enforcement response as a rock crusher facility that violates a particular matter limit in Astoria or somewhere else. Um, we're trying to be consistent with our enforcement response. Yeah, and that really gets at my next question, which is when you get to that formal enforcement part, how do you decide how much money you're going to charge someone? So you were just talking about consistency and we want to be consistent you know, in all things, but including probably how much we charge people. So how does that get determined? Yeah, so... DEQ has rules that outline how the agency calculates its civil penalties and what factors we must consider. Um, and there are a number of factors, so I can talk through them one by one. The first one is that our enforcement rules categorize dip different types of violations based on how serious the environmental or human health harm is. So typically a more serious violation is gonna get a higher penalty. Um, in some cases, our rules actually categorize who the violator is. The penalty rules also require DEQ to consider what we call aggravating and mitigating factors. Um, in that area, we consider things like the mental state of the violator, their efforts to correct the violation, uh, the prior history of violations. So have they received um, warning letters or penalties from DEQ before? And the length of time over which uh, the violations have occurred. So some of these factors can make the penalty go up. Those are the aggravating aspect of it. And some factors can actually mitigate the penalty and help it go down if they, for example, taken prompt corrective action. And all those pieces of the penalty that I just described are what we call the gravity-based penalty. And that part of the penalty is meant to achieve the deterrent effect that Karen talked about. The other piece of the penalty, which is, is equally important, that gets to that leveling the playing field reason that we do enforcement is called um, economic benefit. And under economic benefit, we're looking at whether the violators save money or even whether they gained a profit as a result of the violation. So I want to maybe give an example of that. Um, let's say there's a rule that goes into effect that imposes a new stricter emissions limit. We have facility A that pays several million dollars to install pollution controls and meet the limit, but facility B does not. 
So when we have an enforcement case against facility B for failing to comply with the limit, we would then assess an economic benefit. And that would be the amount that it would have cost facility B to install those pollution controls and get into compliance with the emission limit. This not only levels the playing field, but it's a financial incentive for facility B to get back into compliance. And when they do, DEQ can then reduce that economic benefit portion of the penalty. So it's leveling the playing field, but it's also a useful tool in our toolbox to achieve compliance. And all of this is documented in a formal order that's issued by DEQ. Yeah, and I was thinking, you know, we get asked about um, those fines and what makes makes them up. And that's all online, right? That's right. We actually include a penalty calculation that goes through all of the penalty factors and explains how the facts apply to the penalty rules. And that is available in the formal document that we issue. And I've found it to be really useful because once you get to know some of these terms that you've been saying, you can look at that and you get a sense of, oh, okay, this is why they increased the fine for this reason or that reason. And, And now, usually when I get asked about enforcement, people tend to focus on how much DEQ is gonna make a violator pay. So help me understand, what is an enforcement order besides just a fine? Yeah, Dylan, um, so when there is something that we think the facility needs to do to return to compliance or prevent future violations, we also include corrective actions in our order. So for example, we might order a facility to conduct additional monitoring, maybe to do training or to develop better plans or procedures to avoid future violations. We might order something a little bit more concrete, like better water quality treatment or air pollution controls, or ask them to repair equipment that's broken, um, that's causing problems. This is a part of the case that I work closely with the inspector on because they have the technical or the engineering expertise to understand what will remedy the problem. And then, you know, what happens if people do not stop violating? In the end, can DEQ shut a facility down? The answer is yes. Typically, facilities will respond to our compliance orders, but we do have the authority in those cases where there are persistent, serious violations. The other authority that DEQ has um, is to issue a cease and desist order at the direction of the governor, ordering a facility to stop the action that's causing pollution. Um, But that is reserved for emergency situations when DEQ makes a finding that there is imminent and substantial danger to human health. Um, And I'm only aware of one situation in recent history where DEQ has issued an order like this, and that was in 2016 when there was monitoring data that showed high levels of toxic metals being emitted from an art glass facility in Portland. And I'm curious about some of the mechanics of this. So what happens after DEQ issues an enforcement order? Is that the end? Can it be appealed? Um, It's the end if there is no appeal, Um, but we often do receive appeals. I would say over half of our orders do get appealed, um, and that's because the facility has something they want to discuss or negotiate with DEQ or they have more information that they want us to be aware of. An appeal means that the person or the company that received the order has reserved their right to a contested case hearing before an administrative law judge. But before we go to that hearing, we always set up a meeting with the violator to discuss the case. And I would say 
uh, over 90%, maybe even over 95% of our cases are resolved in settlement. Um, when we settle a case, we still have to apply our penalty rules, but sometimes the violator will have new information that we haven't considered. For example, they may have taken corrective actions that we weren't aware of or that they hadn't taken when we, when we reviewed the case. Um, or as we discussed earlier, they might be willing to um, commit to an order where they come into compliance or take the actions we're asking them to do. And that would allow us to reduce the economic benefit portion of the penalty. If we're able to come to agreement, we formalize the agreement in a final agency order. And if we're not able to come to agreement, then we refer the case to the Office of Administrative Hearings. That's a separate state agency that handles all of DEQ's contested cases. The case is assigned to an administrative law judge and the judge holds a hearing, which is kind of like a mini trial where we present evidence, we examine and cross-examine witnesses. And then after the hearing, the judge issues the order. Once we get to that final order you're talking about, then there is a fine. Where, where does that money go? Yeah, most of the penalty dollars that DEQ collects do not go to the agency. The Oregon State Legislature has directed us in statute that the penalty dollars that DEQ collects should go to the state general fund. There are a few types of penalties, though, that do go to specific funds. For example, if the penalty is for um, an oil spill, then the penalty dollars go to a specific funds that supports the state bill response program. Is there any way to get that money back into the communities that have been harmed by the violations? Um, yes, we do have a program that allows the violator to put 80% of the penalty dollars to what we call a supplemental environmental project or a SEP. And a SEP is a project with measurable environmental benefits. And it has to be something that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the extra funding. So one of the really important criteria that we have for approving SEPs is it can't fund something that either the violator or the recipient of the funds was legally required to do. has to be something extra that benefits the environment. Whether to do a SEP or not is up to the um, company that's paying the penalty. So some examples of SEPs I've seen are for watershed restoration projects, waste cleanup on public lands, tree planting, funding for school buses with lower emissions, um, I've even had SEPs in some of my cases for construction of a greenhouse at a community garden or funding an open outdoor camp for kids. That seems like a really great option. And I'm wondering, since that seems like a discussion that is primarily between um, the violator and DEQ, are there any ways for community or environmental groups to connect with violators and maybe suggest projects for them and kind of help direct what they feel would be beneficial in repairing that harm? Absolutely. And we do get that question sometimes from community groups, and I always encourage them to reach out to the violator directly if they know a penalty has been issued and they have SEP ideas. Um, some community groups have project underway that can actually accept SEP funds, and they're welcome to pitch those directly to the company. Um, community groups may also want to just share with the company what they think the greatest needs are in the community, how, how they'd like to see those funds directed. Um, ultimately, it is up to the company to select a project that meets DEQ's approval criteria. Um, well, thanks so much for that, Kiana and Becca. And so it's just so interesting to kind of take a moment and learn more about what you guys do. And, you know, from the 
public perspective that I see DQ enforcing environmental laws is a really important function of our agency. And so turning now to Patrick over at uh, the EPA, our federal partner, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do for EPA? Thanks for inviting me to participate in the episode, Lauren Dillon. I am happy to be here. I am an attorney in the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency Region 10 Office of Regional Counsel based in the Alaska Operations Office in Anchorage. But I, I work on matters throughout Region 10's four states, which includes the state of Oregon. So I, I primarily support the region's enforcement and compliance assurance division on a variety of water-related issues, including bringing Clean Water Act and Safe Drinking Water Act administrative and judicial enforcement cases. You know, I think maybe to the average person that could sound very similar, you know, to what we do, but at a different level. And so I'm wondering, you know, we just heard about DEQ's enforcement process. What does it look like for EPA? So it depends on the on the specific program being implemented, uh, but generally we initiate our enforcement actions through an inspection where an inspector discovers a violation. And so once an inspector identifies a violation, we can take one of two tracks. So the, the first track, which is the most common track, is what we call administrative enforcement. And in order for a violation to go into this track, it typically needs to be a, a relatively small violation that warrants a relatively small monetary penalty. So that's the first enforcement track. The second enforcement track is what we call judicial enforcement. And this typically comes into play when we have a particularly egregious violator warranting a significant civil penalty or in scenarios where a state is serving as a co-plaintiff. So in the judicial enforcement context, EPA engages the U.S. Department of Justice to represent the agency in federal district court. And similar to our administrative enforcement process, EPA and DOJ virtually always provide violators an opportunity to confer in the judicial enforcement process. And I'll also just briefly mention that similar to DEQ, we do have uh, authority to pursue violators criminally. Great. Thanks. And I'm just thinking that does, that does sound similar. And so you mentioned inspections. So does EPA perform inspections in Oregon? And how do you sort of, is that collaborative with DEQ to get EPA's perspective on a facility? Or um, does EPA have some sort of specific nexus with that facility that leads you to inspect it? Can you hear a bush plant in the background? Okay, well, give me give me a second, then we'll let the moose hunters go by. So the answer to your question, Lauren, is yes, uh, depending on the on the program, EPA performs inspections independently or jointly with our, our state or federal partners. Um, in the programs where DEQ is uh, has the primary implementation authority, um, we often do collaborate with the state to try to determine appropriate facilities to inspect. Um, but there are circumstances where the agency uh, makes decisions based on um, information that it receives independently to perform inspections, uh, in particular in scenarios where we think there are uh, public health concerns that warrant a, a fairly quick response. And Lauren, this is Kieran. I, you know, I might add to that in terms of the collaboration of the agencies. I appreciate your comments there, Patrick. You know, from my perspective, I think that Oregon DEQ and EPA's Region 10 have a great working relationship. You know, Patrick mentioned 
judicial enforcement and the state being a co-plaintiff. We've worked in that capacity together. And the programs also work pretty closely um, on the inspection targeting as well. And we often have DEQ staff accompany EPA. And you know, I know Patrick, and I think he's probably a little modest, but the EPA folks are are great, very, very, you know, provide a lot of expertise. And um, I do think that that's a that's a big part of this is the collaboration between state and the federal agency. Thanks, Kieran. Yeah, I, I would echo those those comments. Uh, at, at EPA, at Region Ten, and the state of Oregon have a, a really great working relationship, um, and it's it's a, it's critical for us to jointly be able to implement these programs effectively. And I do find that when EPA and DEQ are able to serve as co-plaintiffs on judicial enforcement actions, it often does result in better outcomes than EPA or DEQ would potentially be able to obtain independently. Thanks for that, Patrick. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, there are things that EPA can do that DEQ can't? Yes. So the the first EPA administrator, William Ruckelhaus, said that it would be valuable for states to be able to treat EPA as the, quote, gorilla in the closet. And EPA recognizes that DEQ is more than capable of effectively implementing its enforcement programs and appreciates the state's diligence to protect the air, land, and and water of the state. But it it can at times be helpful for DEQ to be able to use EPA as a threat to manage particularly unruly violators. We often seek uh, larger monetary penalties from violators than DEQ. And we also can bring cases in federal district court, as I mentioned previously. And those cases that are brought in federal district court result in oversight by a federal judge, which brings increased scrutiny and attention to the facility. And we we maintain an enforcement presence in all of our states, including Oregon, to ensure that the regulated community recognizes that there are consequences associated with failing to comply with environmental laws designed to protect human health and the environment. Yeah, thanks so much for all of that, Patrick. Um, And it just sounds like, you know, the collaboration is a really important piece so that people in Oregon and folks at EPA can be um, assured that DEQ is holding people accountable. And so, Jonah, thank you so much for being on the podcast as well. And um, tell us a bit about yourself and what the Northwest Environmental Defense Center is and does. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. So my name is Jonah Sanford. I'm the executive director of the Northwest Environmental Defense Center in Portland. NEDC is an independent nonprofit organization with our offices up at Lewis and Clark Law School here in Portland. And we were founded way back in 1969 by a group of law students and environmental alumni and law professors at Lewis and Clark. And we're formed with a pretty broad mission to protect the environment and natural resources of the Pacific Northwest. And to do that, we advocate, including through litigation, on a number of environmental issues and have won some really important victories over the years related to Oregon's water quality, air quality, endangered species. Um, In general, we, we try to be very aggressive when we see an important issue that might be falling through the cracks here in the Pacific Northwest. And a really central part of our mission and something that's very unique about NEDC is that we provide training and mentorship for law students at Lewis and Clark that are interested in a career in environmental law. 
So each year we oversee a network of as many as 50 or 60 student volunteers here on campus. And we're able to provide great hands-on experience for them. Um, but these students also really help increase our capacity to take on a variety of issues and uh, ultimately really help fuel a lot of our advocacy work. Nice. And uh... An interesting fun fact, you mentioned 1969. That's also the year that Oregon created DEQ. I did not yeah. realize that. Yeah, that's a, in case that ever comes up at trivia night at your local pub, you, you'll have that one ready. You know, I think it, it might be clear to folks why DEQ and EPA have a role in enforcing environmental laws, but help me understand what role does a nonprofit like NEDC have in enforcing environmental laws? What role do you guys play? So most of the major environmental protection statutes that were passed back in the 1960s and 1970s, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, Endangered Species Act, each, each of these statutes contain a section that's known as the citizen supervision. And in these sections, Congress essentially empowered citizens and organizations like NEDC to bring federal lawsuits against entities that are violating these statutes. So this is really an incredibly important tool, which allows people who are impacted by these unlawful activities to step in and enforce these statutes when state and federal agencies are not doing so. And over the course of NEDC's um, now 53-year history, we've regularly brought these citizen suits on behalf of our members against industrial facilities here in Oregon who are violating their water quality permits or violating their air quality permits. You know, it sounds like you can bring these suits. Can you actually issue a fine? So good question. So a, a nonprofit can't issue a fine to a polluter. Although if a citizen suit does go to trial, a court could order a facility to pay civil penalties. But often before these cases make it to trial, we'll end up reaching a settlement agreement with the defendant. And these settlements almost always contain a provision which requires the industrial facility, you know, instead of paying a traditional penalty, to make one or more payments to a local nonprofit organization or another entity to fund on the ground projects that improve water quality or improve air quality in that watershed or airshed. And this is this, you know, very similar idea to the supplemental environmental project concept that, that Becca discussed earlier. And in our view, this is a really effective use of these funds that would otherwise be directed to the U.S. Treasury. Uh, instead of going to the Treasury, this money instead goes towards these on-the-ground projects that serve to you know, further protect and further enhance the resources that we're trying to protect through these citizen suits. Yeah, and so it sounds like what you're describing is sort of like an individual approach where NEDC takes you know the facility to to court. Can you also get involved in DEQ or EPA's enforcement process, and how does that work? So there are some limited ways for a group like NEDC to get involved in a DEQ-led enforcement action uh, if there's an enforcement action against a facility that we're concerned about, which is actually being contested by the facility. 
And we believe the DEQ might not be adequately representing our interests for one reason or another. In that situation, we can petition to join a case as a, a party or as a limited party. But that type of involvement for NEDC in a DEQ-led case is very rare. Instead, we typically devote more time and more resources sort of to the front end of this process. So in other words, devoting time to making sure that the permits themselves, when they're issued, are as protective as they can be. So when these permits are, are being issued, we'll submit public comments, we'll participate in public hearings, all with an eye toward ensuring that these permits, when they're you know, finally issued, are protective of the state's resources and that they contain very clear, very enforceable conditions that can lead to enforcement down the line, you know, either from DEQ or from EPA or from NEDC when those conditions are violated. So we've found over the years that that's a, a really effective and really efficient way for us to participate in these processes. Yeah, well, and then since you have experience navigating these waddles, I was wondering if there was one thing you could change about DEQ's enforcement process, what would it be? What would your members like to see from DEQ? You know, one thing I would change about DEQ's enforcement process is that I think there are a lot of opportunities for more public transparency throughout the enforcement process. Right now, there's really no easy way for NEDC or for the general public to know when DEQ initiates an enforcement action against a violator. Uh, as uh, Kieran and Becca you know, kind of mentioned earlier, we'll get a notice when the process has essentially been wrapped up and DEQ has issued a fine, but not before that. And I, I think it's incredibly important for communities to be aware when DEQ has identified violations at a facility nearby, um, when DEQ has begun to investigate. And I think there are some kind of natural points earlier in the enforcement process when it, it makes really good sense for the public to be aware of what's going on at, at these violating facilities. I mean, that that's just such a good point about the role that enforcement plays. And I think when we have taken enforcement issues to communities, it is something that overall they really appreciate. And um, and I, I like your comment, Jonah, about greater transparency, um, because I think that it's something that people like that we do, you know, to really demonstrate that DEQ has its eyes on the situation and is paying attention, you know, not just issuing permits for the sake of moving paper around, but because they mean something. Um, and we, you know, write them certain ways for certain reasons, and that's to protect human health and the environment. Um, I would like to end with an emphasis on the essential role of enforcement to building trust in government. And I think Jonah spoke to this. Um, it really only works if community is meaningly engaged in DEQ's work. Um, so I would encourage all of our listeners to engage as much as they can, follow the agency news releases, get on gov delivery list, attend public meetings, either with our Environmental Quality Commission or on rulemakings. And also just to note, it's so important for DEQ to foster that meaningful engagement from community in the agency's decision making. So 
maybe as a final shameless plug, also consider applying for a job at DEQ. We do have some vacancies and working for government, uh, working in public service can be an incredibly rewarding career. Uh, We've got a great group of people here, um, a lot of good teammates. So come join the team. that was truly so much detail. Um, If this is something you're really interested in, you might have to go back and listen or take notes. Uh, But remember that we have a show notes page. It's dequblog.com slash green state. And it always has helpful show notes to point you towards different sections of the podcast or whatever particular part of it you thought was interesting. So Dylan, I'm curious what struck you most about our conversation? You know, It's making me think about some of the big enforcement cases we've had over the past couple of years. In fact, I went through our old enforcements to look at the different fines, and the top fines in the past two years range from about $450 to $2.7 million. Wow, that's um, really interesting and demonstrates what folks were talking about in terms of how serious the agency is about deterring violations. But of course, they also made the point that it doesn't stop there. The fines can go down in certain situations, but that really only happens when the facilities are also demonstrating getting into compliance. Absolutely. And we learned that DEQ can and does leverage EPA or the threat of bringing in the EPA to gain compliance. EPA brings that federal weight as well as larger fines. Yeah. And then it was so great to hear from Jonah with the Northwest Environmental Defense Center. They are playing a really crucial role in this process. And I appreciated Jonah's recommendation about making the process even more transparent. We can always be doing more to increase transparency. And I know that gave us all a lot to think about. Agreed. And I know we mentioned it before, but I really hope folks listening out there will visit the show notes page because we're going to have a lot of great links on there information about NEDC, how to find all our enforcement actions, how to get the monthly list of enforcements, supplemental environmental project information, and more. Uh, Please check it out. Oh, and also, Kieran's plug to join our team here at DQ. You want to work with Lauren and I? We'll add a link to our show notes where you can get information about jobs at DEQ. For sure. Please do check all of that out. Uh, We hope this has been a helpful and informative episode of Green State. And coming up soon, we'll be talking about finding mercury in surprising places in your home and the havoc it can wreak. And DEQ's water quality trading program, where we meet with the Freshwater Trust and visit properties in Southern Oregon that the trust is restoring uh, next to rivers to help improve water quality. All right. See you next time on Green State. Thank you for listening to Green State, the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality's podcast. And thanks to all the voices who contributed to the conversation. Our music is by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you get our upcoming episodes. You can listen pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Feel free to rate and review. And if you have any questions or ideas for topics for us to cover, you can reach us at 503-451-0585 or by email at green.state@oregon.gov. To find out more, go to dequblog.com 
slash green state.